Chapter 23 of The Uncommercial Traveler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Safari. The Uncommercial Traveler by Charles Dickens. Chapter 23 The City of the Absent. When I think I deserve particularly well of myself, and have earned the right to enjoy a little treat, I stroll from Covent Garden into the city of London. After business hours there, on a Saturday, or, better yet, on a Sunday, and roam about its deserted nooks and corners. It is necessary to the full enjoyment of these journeys that they should be made in summertime, for then the retired spots that I love to haunt are at their idlest and dullest. A gentle fall of rain is not objectionable, and a warm mist sets off my favorite retreats to decided advantage. Among these, city churchyards hold a high place. Such strange churchyards hide in the city of London. Churchyards sometimes so entirely detached from churches, always so pressed upon by houses, so small, so rank, so silent, so forgotten except by the few people who ever look down into them from their smoky windows. As I stand peeping in through the iron gates and rails, I can peel the rusty metal off, like bark from an old tree. The illegible tombstones are all lopsided. The grave mounds lost their shape in the rains of a hundred years ago. The Lombardy poplar or plane tree that was once a dry salter's daughter and several common councilmen, has withered like those worthies, and as departed leaves are dust beneath it. Contagion of slow ruin overhangs the place. The discolored tiled roofs of the environing buildings stand so awry that they can hardly be proof against any stress of weather. Old crazy stacks of chimneys seem to look down as they overhang, dubiously calculating how far they will have to fall. In an angle of the walls, what was once the tool-house of the grave-digger rots away, encrusted with toadstools. Pipes and spouts for carrying off the rain from the encompassing gables, broken or feloniously cut for old lead long ago, now let the rain drip and splash as it list upon the weedy earth. Sometimes there is a rusty pump somewhere near, and, as I look in at the rails and meditate, I hear it working under an unknown hand with a creaking protest, as though the departed in the churchyard urged, Let us lie here in peace. Don't suck us up and drink us. One of my best beloved churchyards, I call the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grim, touching what men in general call it, I have no information. It lies at the heart of the city, and the Blackwall Railway shrieks at it daily. It is a small, small churchyard with a ferocious, strong, spiked iron gate, like a jail. This gate is ornamented with skulls and crossbones larger than life, wrought in stone. But it likewise came into the mind of St. Ghastly Grim that to stick iron spikes atop of the stone skulls as though they were impaled 
would be a pleasant device. Therefore the skulls grin aloft horribly, rust through and through with iron spears. Hence, there is attraction of repulsion for me in St. Ghastly Grim. And, having often contemplated it in the daylight and the dark, I once felt drawn towards it in a thunderstorm at midnight. Why not? I said in self-excuse. I have been to see the Colosseum by the light of the moon. Is it worse to go to see St. Ghastly Grim by the light of the lightning? I repaired to the saint in a hackney cab and found the skulls most effective. Having the air of a public execution and, seeming, as the lightning flashed, to wink and grin with the pain of the spikes. Having no other person to whom to impart my satisfaction, I communicated it to the driver. So far from being responsive, he surveyed me. He was naturally a bottle-nosed, red-faced man with a blanched countenance. And as he drove me back, he ever and again glanced in over his shoulder through the little front window of his carriage. As mistrusting that I was a fare originally from a grave in the churchyard of St. Ghastly Grim, who might have flitted home again without paying. Sometimes the queer hall of some queer company gives upon a churchyard such as this, and, when the livery dine, you may hear them, if you are looking in through the iron rails, which you never are when I am, toasting their own worshipful prosperity. Sometimes a wholesale house of business, requiring much room for stowage, will occupy one or two or even all three sides of the enclosing space. Backs of bales of goods will lumber up the windows, as if they were holding some crowded trade meeting of themselves within. Sometimes the commanding windows are all blank, and show no more sign of life than the graves below. Not so much for they tell of what once upon a time was life undoubtedly. Such was the surrounding of one city churchyard that I saw last summer, on a volunteering Saturday evening towards eight of the clock, when with astonishment I beheld an old, old man and an old, old woman in it making hay. Yes, of all occupations in this world, making hay. It was a very confined patch of churchyard, lying between Grace Church Street and the tower, capable of yielding, say, an apron full of hay. By what means the old, old man and woman had got into it, with an almost toothless hay-making rake, I could not fathom. No open window was within view. No window at all was within view, sufficiently near the ground to have enabled their old legs to descend from it. The rusty churchyard gate was locked, the moldy church was locked, gravely among the graves they made hay, all alone by themselves. They looked like Time and his wife. There was but the one rake between them, and they both had hold of it in a pastorally loving manner, and there was hay on the old woman's black bonnet, as if the old man had recently been playful. The old man was quite an obsolete old man, in knee breeches and coarse gray stockings, and the old woman wore mittens 
like unto his stockings in texture and in color. They took no heed of me as I looked on, unable to account for them. The old woman was much too bright for a pew opener, the old man much too meek for a beetle. On an old tombstone in the foreground between me and them were two cherubim, but for those celestial embellishments being represented as having no possible use for knee breeches, stockings, or mittens, I should have compared them with the haymakers, and sought a likeness. I coughed and awoke the echoes. The haymakers never looked at me. They used the rake with a measured action, drawing the scanty crop towards them, and so I was fain to leave them under three yards and a half of darkening sky, gravely making hay among the graves, all alone by themselves. Perhaps they were specters, and I wanted a medium. In another city churchyard of similar cramped dimensions, I saw, that self-same summer, two comfortable charity children. They were making love, tremendous proof of the vigor of that immortal article, for they were in the graceful uniform under which English charity delights to hide herself, and they were overgrown, and their legs, his legs at least, for I am modestly incompetent to speak of hers, were as much in the wrong as mere passive weakness of character can render legs. Oh, it was a leaden churchyard, but no doubt a golden ground to those young persons. I first saw them on a Saturday evening, and, perceiving from their occupation that Saturday evening was their trysting time, I returned that evening, tonight, and renewed the contemplation of them. They came there to shake the bits of matting which were spread in the church aisles, and they afterwards rolled them up, he rolling his end, she rolling hers, until they met, and over the two once divided, now united rolls, sweet emblem, gave and received a chaste salute. It was so refreshing to find one of my faded churchyards blooming into flower thus, that I returned a second time, and a third, and ultimately this befell. They had left the church door open, in their dusting and arranging, walking in to look at the church, I became aware, by the dim light, of him in the pulpit, of her in the reading desk, of him looking down, of her looking up, exchanging tender discourse. Immediately both dived, and became, as it were, non-existent on this sphere. With an assumption of innocence I turned to leave the sacred edifice, when an obese form stood in the portal, puffily demanding Joseph, or in default of Joseph, Celia, taking this monster by the sleeve, and luring him forth on pretense of showing him whom he sought, I gave time for the emergence of Joseph and Celia, who presently came towards us in the churchyard, bending under dusty matting, a picture of thriving and unconscious industry. It would be superfluous to hint that I have ever since deemed this proudest passage in my life, but such instances or any tokens of vitality are rare indeed in my city churchyards. A few sparrows occasionally try to raise a lively chirrup in their solitary tree, perhaps as taking a different view of worms from that entertained by humanity. But they are flat and hoarse of voice, like the clerk, the organ, bell, clergyman, and all the rest of the church works 
when they are wound up for Sunday. Caged larks, thrushes, or blackbirds, hanging in neighboring courts, pour forth their strains passionately, as scenting the tree, trying to break out, and see leaves again before they die. But their song is willow, willow of a churchyard cast. So little light lives inside the churches of my churchyards, when the two are coexistent, that it is often only by an accident and after long acquaintance that I discover their having stained glass in some odd window. The westering sun slants into the churchyard by some unwanted entry. A few prismatic tears drop on an old tombstone, and the window that I thought was only dirty is for the moment all bejeweled. Then the light passes, and the colors die. Though even then, if there be room enough for me to fall back so far as that I can gaze up to the top of the church tower, I see the rusty vein, new burnished, and seeming to look out with a joyful flash over the sea of smoke at the distant shore of country. Blinking old men who are let out of workhouses by the hour have a tendency to sit on bits of coping stone in these churchyards, leaning with both hands on their sticks and asthmatically gasping. The more depressed class of beggars, too, bring hither broken meats and munch. I am on nodding terms with a meditative turncock who lingers in one of them, and whom I suspect of a turn for poetry, the rather, as he looks out of temper when he gives the fireplug a disparaging wrench with that large tuning fork of his which would wear out the shoulder of his coat but for a precautionary piece of inlaid leather. Fire ladders, which I am satisfied nobody knows anything about, and the keys of which were lost in ancient times, molder away in the larger churchyards, under eaves like wooden eyebrows, and so removed are those corners from the haunts of men and boys, that once on a fifth of November I found a guy trusted to take care of himself there while his proprietors had gone to dinner. Of the expression of his face I cannot report, because it was turned to the wall, but his shrugged shoulders and his ten extended fingers appeared to denote that he had moralized in his little straw chair on the mystery of mortality until he gave it up as a bad job. You do not come upon these churchyards violently. There are shapes of transition in the neighborhood. An antiquated new shop, or barber shop, apparently bereft of customers in the earlier days of George the Third, would warn me to look out for one. If any discoveries in this respect were left for me to make, a very quiet court, in combination with an unaccountable dyers and scorers, would prepare me for a churchyard. An exceedingly retiring public house, with the bagatelle board, shadily visible in a sawdusty parlor shaped like an omnibus, and with a shelf of punch-bowls in the bar, would apprise me that I stood near consecrated ground. A dairy, exhibiting in its modest window one very little milk-can and three eggs, would suggest to me the certainty of finding the poultry hard by, pecking at my forefathers. I first inferred the vicinity of St. Ghastly Grimm from a certain air of extra repose and gloom pervading a vast stack of warehouses. From the hush of these places, it is congenial to pass into the hushed resorts of business. 
Down the lanes I like to see the carts and wagons huddled together in repose, the cranes idle, and the warehouses shut. Pausing in the alleys behind the closed banks of mighty Lombard Street, it gives one as good as a rich feeling to think of the broad counters with a rim along the edge, made for telling money out on, the scales for weighing precious metals, the ponderous ledgers, and, above all, the bright copper shovels for shoveling gold. When I draw money, it never seems so much money as when it is shoveled at me out of a bright copper shovel. I like to say, in gold, and to see seven pounds musically pouring out of the shovel, like seventy, the bank appearing to remark to me, I, italicize appearing, if you want more of this yellow earth, we keep it in barrows at your service. To think of the banker's clerk, with his deft finger turning the crisp edges of the hundred-pound notes he has taken in a fat roll out of a drawer, is again to hear the rustling of that delicious South Cash wind. How will you have it? I once heard this usual question asked at a bank counter of an elderly female, habited in mourning and steeped in simplicity, who answered, open-eyed, crooked-fingered, laughing with expectation, Anyhow, calling these things to mind as I stroll among the banks, I wonder whether the other solitary Sunday man I passed has designs upon the banks. For the interest and mystery of the matter, I almost hope he may have, and that his confederate may be at this moment taking impressions of the keys of the iron closets in wax, and that a delightful robbery may be in course of transaction. About College Hill, Mark Lane, and so on towards the tower, and Dockward, the deserted wine merchant's cellars are fine subjects for consideration. The deserted money cellars of the bankers, and their plate cellars, and their jewel cellars. What subterranean regions of the wonderful lamp are these? And again, possibly some shoeless boy in rags, passed through this street yesterday, from whom it is reserved to be a banker in the fullness of time, and to be surpassing rich. Such reverses have been since the days of Whittington, and were long before. I want to know whether the boy has any foreglittering of that glittering fortune now, when he treads these stones, hungry. Much as I also want to know whether the next man to be hanged at Newgate yonder had any suspicion upon him that he was moving steadily towards that fate. When he talks so much about the last man who paid the same great debt at the same small debtor's door, where are all the people who on busy working days pervade these scenes? The locomotive banker's clerk carries a black portfolio chained to him by a chain of steel. Where is he? Does he go to bed with his chain on? To church with his chain on? Or does he lay it by? And if he lays it by, what becomes of his portfolio when he is unchained for a holiday? The waste paper baskets of these closed counting houses would let me into many hints of business matters if I had the exploration of them. And what secrets of the heart should I discover on the pads of the young clerks? The sheets of cartridge paper and blotting paper interposed between their writing and their desks. Pads are taken into confidence on the tenderest occasions, 
and oftentimes, when I have made a business visit, and have sent in my name from the outer office, have I had it forced on my discursive notice that the officiating young gentleman has over and over again inscribed Amelia, in ink of various dates, on corners of his pad. Indeed, the pad may be regarded as the legitimate modern successor of the old forest tree, whereon these young knights, having no attainable forest nearer than Epping, engrave the names of their mistresses. After all, it is a more satisfactory process than carving, and can be oftener repeated. So these courts in their Sunday rest are courts of love omnipotent. I rejoice to bethink myself, dry as they look, and here is Garraway's, bolted and shuttered, hard and fast. It is possible to imagine the man who cuts the sandwiches on his back in a hayfield. It is possible to imagine his desk, like the desk of a clerk at church, without him. But imagination is unable to pursue the men who wait at Garraway's all the week for the men who never come. When they are forcibly put out of Garraway's on Saturday night, which they must be, for they never would go out of their own accord, where do they vanish until Monday morning? On the first Sunday that I ever strayed here, I expected to find them hovering about these lanes, like restless ghosts, and trying to peep into Garraway's through the chinks in the shutters, if not endeavoring to turn the lock of the door with false keys, picks, and screwdrivers. But the wonder is that they go clean away. And now I think of it, the wonder is that every working-day pervader of these scenes goes away clean. The man who sells the dog's collars and the little toy coal scuttles feels under as great an obligation to go afar off as Glenn and Company, or Smith, Payne, and Smith. There is an old monastery crypt under Garraway's. I have been in it among the port wine, and perhaps Garraway's, taking pity on the moldy men who wait in its public room all their lives, gives them cool house room down there over Sundays. But the catacombs of Paris would not be large enough to hold the rest of the missing. This characteristic of London City greatly helps its being the quaint place it is in the weekly pause of business, and greatly helps my Sunday sensation in it of being the last man. In my solitude, the ticket porters, being all gone with the rest, I venture to breathe to the quiet bricks and stones my confidential wonderment why a ticket porter, who never does any work with his hands, is bound to wear a white apron, and why a great ecclesiastical dignitary, who never does any work with his hands either, is equally bound to wear a black one. End of Chapter 23 Recording by Rick Saffrey, Parkville, Maryland